0: My feet carry me there, away from ugly sounds of home. Bright sun filtered, dappled ground. Impossibly tall roots reach above my head, and I can let a small breath in, curl my palm against the cool, rough bark, hard-beating heart. Touch where the root emerges from the earth, Tracing fingers up and along as high as I can. So quiet, even the birds whisper. Sinking into a cave of mushroomy litter, fallen leaves are swollen. Strip them until only the skeleton is left. Have they even noticed I'm missing? Mottling shades of blue-brown-green leaf-shaped shadows play against bare legs splayed outwards, fingers busy in the mulch and my heart beginning to sit down with me. The shadow dance becomes softer, toes grow cold. It's time to return, back to shards of glass and other brittle things. I'll come back though. One day I'll make a friend and we'll find three eggs smudged with dirt and droppings and won't know to worry that our touching will keep the mother bird away. We'll try to step the whole way round the stoic fig tree, balancing only on the roots. We could stay there forever and never mind a bit. Sanctuary by Jackie J. The children in the tree.
1: Hidden by leaves, their quick, quiet eyes follow you. And you might never know but for a sensation on the back of your neck, which tells you you're not alone. One of those children was once you. And there's a part of you always up in that tree, looking down, mystified by the adult world, but powerful in your invisibility. You know your territory, not by the streets and shops and houses, but by the trees, the markings on the bark at eye level, the climbability of the boughs above. And you never fully forget this as you pass from the whispering leafy world to the sharp-cornered one of the grown-ups.
2: There's always a sense of mystery when you enter into a forest, but that mystery is itself mysterious. It's not immediately obvious, at least to me, why this seems to be such a recurrent and universal sensation. And it actually is another world. The uh, French uh, anthropologist Claude Lévi-Strauss authored a book, a famous book called Triste Tropique, about his voyages and his trip to Brazil and his experiences there in the Amazon forest. And he says in that book, a few dozen yards of forests are enough to abolish the external world. One universe gives way to another, which is less flattering to the eye, but where hearing and smell, faculties closer to the soul than sight, come into their own. And I think that contains the beginning of an answer to this sense of mystery. One thing about the forest is that it's very difficult to connect sounds to images, because it's difficult to identify visually the source of a sound in this environment where animals or birds are concealing themselves. So the visual, which usually dominates, gives way to other senses, particularly sound. And I believe that that has something to do with the forest provides a certain depth to sounds. The actual sense experience of of hearing a certain depth to the sounds correlates psychically with a deep memory we have in ourselves, in our subconscious or unconscious, that forests are a place of origin for, if not the human species, at least our primate ancestors. And this notion that they come first, that you enter into it and you're getting in touch with remote, originary things, and it could be our primal kinship with the animal world, that has since been lost, or uh, some sense that there's an element in the forest that is so primary. I don't know what your experience is when you enter a forest, but I often feel like I'm an outsider and a latecomer in that sense.
3: Up by Kosciuszko's side lies the ram's head range. I sneak off into a secret world of wind-muffled silence, trudging over whistling grass and billy buttons. Concealed among boulders, catching the northern sun, are twenty-nine snow gums. Twisted sticks sprung from ancient roots, each no bigger than a wombat. Trees above the tree line? I stare. Each one carries a battered little aluminium tag numbered by a botanist some three decades past the research project has surely long expired but not the trees hidden relics perched hundreds of meters above their mallied dark green cousins that crowd into Threadbow village i have made a pirate's treasure map painstakingly prepared over years of tramping back and forth beneath the dingo howling ridges of this high country. One day I will hand the map, split along its seams, the pencil marks smudged, to my son. I will say, X marks the spot. Tell me what you find. Nature's treasure, buried in the mountains. 29 pieces of pirate treasure by Ian Holland
1: Dear Ian, you've laid out a tempting trail of crumbs I wonder what their story is I wonder if we can find out somehow Best, Gretchen
3: Gretchen, I'm getting in touch with some alpine plant researchers I know or know of I will get back to you
1: What is the proper place for a tree? I always fancifully imagined the most pure and the best trees are the ones that roam free in the bush, that the wild tree is the happiest kind of tree, and that city trees are somehow compromised. But as it turns out, the most loved trees, by humans at least, are city trees, in a domestic setting, at the local park or by the side of the road, or surprisingly, less frequently in our own gardens. Leslie Head from Wollongong University discovered this when studying our attitudes to nature and the environment through our backyards.
4: Trees were one of the things which emerged through that lens to be, I think you'd have to say a bit ambiguous in terms of how people felt about them in their domestic space compared to how they felt about them out in the bush or in the wild, so to speak.
1: So trees were not an easy thing in the back garden you were finding?
4: Well, trees were one of the things that there was quite significant conflict about and quite a significant variation in views. People who loved trees in suburban gardens were in the minority. So there's very few people who will say they don't love trees, but there are quite a few people who will say trees are appropriate in certain places that are not human spaces. So. They're appropriate out in the bush, appropriate probably in parks, although that could also be ambivalent sort of space. But in small suburban blocks, there are quite a few people who find trees very problematic.
5: Three generations ago, our forebears lived in a tree. In 1880, when Gippsland was first being settled, Thomas Davies, wife Sabina, and their young family, including a baby in a basket, trudged through dense, dark forests and tangled undergrowth up the Streslecki Range to their plot at Childers. The area was known as giant land, growing the tallest hardwoods in the world. Their first home, An old, hollowed-out tree stump with pitched roof and two storeys inside must have made a cosy retreat from the incessant rain, mud, darkness and isolation. Clearing the land of the magnificent monsters surrounding them, they tried to eke out an existence, reducing the massive trees to palings and growing raspberries. Later, a house was built and their former tree stump home became a raspberry storehouse. Times were tough and Thomas's long and fruitless trip to Wales to claim inheritance brought him back to the family even further in debt. Thomas Davies may have decimated the eucalypts but he planted wonderful stands of European exotics, gifts from his friend, botanist Baron von Müller. Many of those plantings still stand today. Ultimately, the blackberries, bracken and rabbits beat them, and Thomas's surviving children walked off the land defeated in 1915. Giant land had become the Heartbreak Hills. Three trees they would have passed on their journey frame our home as majestic old gums, while Thomas's great-grandson, my husband, continues to plant hundreds of trees. Our Family Treehouse by Tinny Cook
6: Clearing is one of those first activities of settlers, and it was often seen to be, and I think quite understandably, seen to be a heroic kind of labour. I mean, clearly the physical labour of clearing was immense, and the joy and satisfaction of creating some kind of opening where the sky loomed large and where more grass would grow was something incredibly important to the settlers. And then when ring barking takes off as a practice because it was so kind of quick and relatively cheap, then you get these vast areas which were filled with these dead trees. And so there again, I mean, there was celebration of clearing from the very outset of Europeans living here, but also there was very quickly a kind of critique of it because many of them thought that the landscapes which were being created were horribly ugly and just didn't meet their kind of notions of the picturesque.
1: Tim Bonnehady, cultural historian, environmental lawyer and author from the Australian National University...
6: You can see that in early New South Wales, when the Hawkesbury begins flooding, Governor King, who was in charge of the colony, makes an order, I think in 1802, saying you've got to stop cutting down these trees which border the the Hawkesbury because if we can keep the trees, it will reduce the impact of flooding. And he encourages the settlers to actually replant the trees.
1: Those trees were quite confounding, I think, to the new settlers, weren't they? Because there was really only one softwood and that was the red cedar and so those were set about being cleared at an enormous rate but the rest were just these stubborn, enduring hardwoods that were almost impossible to work and you needed to be able to work the timber in order to set up the colony. So I'm interested in how confronting the trees were.
6: The difference of them was... I guess both confounding and confronting in terms of them not having the kind of physical properties which they expected of timber and and also in terms of the aesthetics of them so there's a very powerful current in early writing about Australia from Europeans where they go on and on about how monotonous they are how they're not deciduous like a proper tree their form isn't right that they don't do shade properly. So there's a kind of very powerful critique and rejection.
1: Were they putting their anxiety onto the trees or what do you think was going on there?
6: The anxiety, I think, is real. I mean, their sense of anxiety being a very small number of invader settlers in this place and often living remotely. And I mean, that kind of thrill and joy which they express when they create clearings, particularly clearings in what they regard as the bush or, or forest and having this kind of patch of cleared territory is palpable and I think is also understandable, having kind of created some kind of defined area in which they have made a mark on the landscape and, and, and where they can see what is going on. I mean, At the same time there is joy in the trees and one of the things which is you know there was an idea very powerful in the 19th century that if you felled large areas of trees you would diminish rainfall and so government occasionally in australia as elsewhere creates sort of forest reserves which they call rainfall reserves in the hope of maintaining rainfall in a dry continent Thursday,
3: 4th of April 2013, to Jack Edgerton, Query Rean Old Study in the Rams Head Range. Dear Mr. Edgerton, I recently wrote a short piece for an ABC project on trees. The piece I wrote concerned a number of dwarf snow gums growing well above the tree line amongst boulders in the Rams Head Range. One of the producers pondered what the backstory might be on these dwarf snow gums have you any idea what the project was that led to them being tagged sometime prior to the mid 1980s? Hoping you may be able to assist. Regards, Ian Holland.
1: Forests are by their nature on the edge of the civilised world, and they define the limits of our civilisation. The new settlers drive the forest back, but it will return to encroach upon them.
7: The first modern tree, Archaeopteris, conquered the world. Its pelt covered much of Pangea and changed the surface of the planet. Since then, trees have evolved 100,000 species. And now, ten percent are endangered. Our house backs onto Jagoon Nature Reserve, a bundle of trees and tree stumps, orchids, vines, birds, insects, reptiles, and mammals. It's regrowth forest on poor sandy soil, mainly blackbutt, bloodwood, and beautiful tallowwood, with rough reddish bark and a thickish canopy. Trees live simultaneously in the earth and in the sky and so impossible to see clearly. The tree is half underground. Regrowth forests display a simpler web of ecological relationships than old growth. It takes 60 years and more to form hollows, vital for parrots, possums and gliders. Trees. Are tall cities of ecological riches, but even the dead and fallen are crucial habitats and the nutrients eventually recycled. The forest faces me, bounds me to its processes and complexity, and is actively working at invasion. I use a mattock on saplings to stop our home being overwhelmed. Nearly all tallow wood. A reminder that our concrete slab swallowed tallowood ground, that our pole house stands on huge tallowood supports, and that tallowood, forest red gum and grey gum, are koala's favourite food trees here on the mid-north coast. Forests were there first by John Bennett.
1: The 18th century Italian philosopher Giambattista Vico pointed out that back at the beginning When we first cut down trees to make a habitable clearing, at the same time, we opened ourselves up to the looming sky. We could see the sky, but the sky could also see us. From those first clearings, our gods shifted slowly, from being male and female deities of the forest to powerful sky gods, Zeus of the Greek pantheon, the Christian and the Muslim gods, These gods observed us, made their judgments, and toyed with us. And from there, we progressed towards enlightenment. Robert Harrison, from Stanford University, is the author of Forests, The Shadow of Civilization.
2: First the forests, after that the huts, then the villages, next the cities, and finally the academies. So Vico tells us that by opening up a clearing in the forest, one opened up a clearing from which one could see the sky to start with, and from which gods or the gods could have seen the first family dwellings. And that from these small clearings, those clearings gradually get larger. So one could say that nowadays we live in a world where the edges of this vast clearing have disappeared to such an extent that we have a completely new anxiety that we live with at the subconscious level of the loss of boundary. And what happens when there is no outside in relation to which we can say that we are dwelling inside a clearing? If it's all become cleared off, then we risk losing our orientation entirely. And I believe that this is a, a certain kind of deep anxiety that we have in the West that. Now has completely redefined the kind of cultural, spiritual, or imaginative relation that we have to the forest.
1: Whether that total exposure to the gaze of the gods unnerves us further is an interesting question. What happened to the old gods and goddesses of the forest is another. Robert argues they live on in the tree-like architecture of our churches and sacred buildings, and perhaps this is why we still sense something like a spirit in our trees, vital and otherworldly.
2: The sacred spaces were groves, where they were in, in the forest with certain clearings, and that would be the site where the pagan god would reveal himself or more often herself. So it's a place of theophany, namely the appearance of a god in the grove. And if you look at a Gothic cathedral and its extreme verticality, and the way it closes in, it looks very much like being inside a kind of forestial space, where the windows through which the light streams in seems to be like coming through a canopy. And then you think of Greek temples, and why are they made of all these columns? They were enclosing the statue of a god, but they seem to reproduce in their very structure these earliest places of a different kind of worship within the forest.
8: The jacaranda is gone, but the space where it dwelt remains, and the spaces the tree held within itself still linger. They carry memories of Currawong's landing, their weight on the branches, calls broadcasting to the neighbourhood. The smoky lavender blossoms would be falling on the driveway between the flats by now. Trunk, branches, leaves, flowers, all palpable in their absence. Their solidity now sits within my body, perhaps if I held out my arms. The Currawongs would come to roost on my limbs in the night. Balancing on one leg, bright yellow eyes gleaming out of black. Presence by Fiona Vaughan.
9: Um, my name's Alexander McKenzie. I'm a digital artist uh, and I'm living in Sydney.
1: Show me what we've got going here. We've got quite a lot of
9: things. Well, there's always a bunch of different things happening in the studios. I do tend to work on a number of different things at once. That's mainly due to the process that oil paint needs to actually dry in between different layers, so you can't work on one painting till the end.
1: This beautiful drawing here, tell me about this and what it's for.
9: This one, it's continuing my exploration of tree imagery. And this one, as you can see, is a sort of manicured island in the middle of what will be quite a dramatic keyhole of the dark cliff shapes on the side. So I use a lot of different trees in this picture, so I, I don't tend to restrict myself to a time of year or an area, I do tend to bower bird things from everywhere. So you've got Japanese spruce eucalypts, you've got deciduous beech, you've got ficus and all sorts of smaller plants all growing and clambering over each other for space.
1: On the walls here you've got a couple of paintings which have these trees which are almost topiary.
9: Yes, yeah. well I use topiary a lot in these works and a number of different species can be turned into topiary trees but specifically for me in these works it's about the tree has been shaped and pruned and created rather than growing in its natural state and that's primarily the loaded message that is behind these works. What I'm picking up on is the idea that exists within many cultures is that the tree is a symbol of our existence and human life. So we as a society are trying to clip and prune and create ourselves into Something else, and this is a constant struggle for me and for us to change yourself from your natural state into something that you'd like to be.
1: April 15, 2013. Hello there, Ian. How did you go with the snow gums in the Ram's Head Ranges? It's been a while. I wonder if your searching has borne fruit. Cheers, Gretchen.
3: Dear Gretchen, I'm terribly sorry things have been frantic here and I've been stuck in 14-hour meetings. But I did some chasing and eventually got the picture from Jack Edgerton at the Australian National University. He said, They were planted as five-year-old saplings by Professor Ralph Slatcher and his team in 1972. I've attached two papers that relate to these trees. Gretchen, the the papers are pretty technical but there is a climate change dimension to the study findings. It's a beautiful landscape for recording soundscapes too when the ravens call amongst the high boulder fields. Anyway, that's what I have and I'm happy to correspond or follow up should you wish. Regards, Ian Holland.
4: We had a group of study participants who we thought of as the native purists and These are definitely in a minority, but they're quite a significant minority, I think, in that their attitudes are very strong and they believe you should always plant natives. The interesting thing about that group of people is that they implicitly exempt themselves from any consideration of belonging or not belonging. I think it goes to a bigger issue, which is most of us see humans quite distinct from nature. Even though theoretically we might say, oh, humans are part of nature and, you know, we're all in this together, there's still this very profound boundary. And I think that's a really big challenge for us in thinking about extending the implications of this work to broader environmental issues. If humans are so powerful as an earth force that they're transforming what we've understood as nature, and that's the essence of the argument about the Anthropocene, that this is a a period defined by the power of human influence. There are big challenges there, thinking, well, we've got all this power, but we need to still be part of this system. What's the best way to use this power? The other place that becomes manifest is in how we understand the divide between the city and the bush, or the city and nature. So a lot of People, particularly in Australia, I think, put a very clear conceptual boundary between the city as a human space, a cultural space, and the bush as the space of nature. And that's at the heart of why they think trees belong out there and trees belong less in here.
1: It was only in the late 1700s, right when Australia was being settled, that Europeans started painting tree portraits. Perhaps it was down to these more focused observations that the new settlers even noticed how different the Australian trees looked. It was a crucial time for trees as they became an aesthetic consideration.
6: With tree portraits, I mean, I guess the big moment in Australia is when John Glover comes to Tasmania in the early 1830s and he's the first artist to come to Australia with a very substantial reputation, having been quite a big-time artist in England. And he's also one of the artists who you can really see is fascinated by the gum tree. He, he has these little sort of pocket sketchbooks and he fills page after page where he is grappling with their novel form. And then in many of his paintings, he does sort of classic Tree Portraits, where he celebrates these trees and does so wonderfully. I guess one of the things though which is then again interesting about that is that partly because his British reputation is so strong, he's one of the few artists who can send large numbers of these works back to England. So his very powerful depictions of the gum tree are primarily for an English audience and maybe influential in terms of people there and how they think about Australia and whether they want to even migrate to Australia, but for a long while are much less important here.
1: I'm quite interested in one person you wrote about in The Colonial Earth, which was Louis Bouvelot from Switzerland, who came in 1864. And his admirers claim that colonists only came to admire the gum tree in the 1870s and, and see them as the equal of the oak and the ash and the elm, thanks to his paintings.
6: I mean, I mean Bouvlo is a pivotal figure, as you say... There's a lot of both forgetting and ignorance about what earlier generations of settlers have done. So with the claim that Bouvelot was the master of the gum tree and he's the first colonial artist who sees them and he's the first who can then persuade his fellow colonists that they really are beautiful trees worthy of appreciation. There, there is a very clear writing out of John Glover in that kind of story, and that's partly because Bouvelot sits in Melbourne John Glover had been in Tasmania, and Glover either paints for um, a British audience or he paints for a Tasmanian audience. And so to a very large extent, his work isn't known elsewhere. And then Buvelot is a more fashionable artist. By then, he's painting in a slightly Barbizon-school kind of way. And he then gets touted as the first artist to render the Gumtree accurately and to change how people view it. But then he also kind of gets eclipsed and forgotten and someone, I guess, Arthur Street, to a certain extent, but really Hans Heisen is the next one. And then exactly the same claims are made about him. And he gets touted as the first guy who gets the gum tree right and the first to change understanding.
9: For me, why I use different size trees and different scale because it gives a feeling of that sense of time, so you have very large older trees that are very knobbly and perhaps some of them have died back in certain areas next to things like baby seedlings either in pots or with stakes held up by string. Um, You have those elements sort of juxtaposed against each other for me kind of indicate that this space that I'm painting has been there for a very long time and Therefore, man's role has been preceded by something else.
1: The thing about your paintings is that although there are no humans in them, there is sign of human life. I mean, there are little pots for some of the trees and there's paths and there's walls. And I guess this references the overarching title for your last exhibition, which is Arboretum. So obviously what you're looking at is a forest that's very deliberately planted. Yes,
9: it's very man made, it's very cultivated, it's very controlled, and it's very devised. And that's a deliberate, specific thing on my part to reference my ideas about what I was talking about earlier about how we're trying to make ourselves as a real life, but as, a, as another element in our spiritual life as we try and mould ourselves into this certain ideals that we hold and we stick to, but at the same time there's this other element that is breaking out of that and trying to revert, I guess, back to its original state.
1: The other thing about them is that these kind of contrived spaces often sit in a landscape that's wild. So behind this garden here, you've got what looks like a eucalypt forest to me on a headland. It could be the Hawkesbury, for example.
9: Again, yeah, that's that idea of that trying to create this ideal for myself as a person, but in amongst the kind of wild craziness that is real life, represented by that sort of distant part of the painting.
1: So it's the wild from whence we came kind of thing?
9: Sure, yeah.
10: I've always had a thing all my life and didn't understand why with gum trees. Trees and rivers in March 2010, I found out why. It all made sense. I got my freedom information and they told me who I was. So the jigsaw started.
1: Uncle Roy Alexander is 64 years old and he's just found out his Aboriginality and that he was one of the stolen generation. His life has been troubled, but despite, or perhaps because of this, for the past 30 years, he's found comfort and a sense of family. Not with people, but with a small group of trees on a hill above a polluted creek in a quiet park in suburban Melbourne.
10: Here they are. Yeah, they are beautiful, aren't they? Yep. These were all saplings. These are the teenagers. These are my teenage kids. You see what I mean? Yeah.
5: yeah, yeah.
10: People mark them. But it comes off. I had an elder here one day with me. And I was crying. He said, what are you crying for? I said, look at the scars. He said, don't worry. They will heal themselves, Roy. They will heal themselves. Doesn't matter what you do. Because I was going down the river and getting water with a rag and (laughs) coming back up the hill. And he said, don't leave it alone. They will heal. This is so beautiful here. And helping through my dysfunctional history. And this opens it up, this peace, as far as I'm concerned. If there is a heaven, this is it. And it's so quiet. And very seldom anybody walks past, so you can sit here and talk to yourself all day. No-one thinks you're crazy, because trees don't think I'm crazy, because they talk back to me. Yeah. I can have a really bad day with my thoughts, and everything else from my childhood and and all the emotions running through my body. And if I can sit down at there or or put my arms around and go to sleep or just shut my eyes. It's like she just drains it out of me and puts the good back in. And I walk away and I'm a different person. And she knows I'll be back. The trees wasn't connected to the aboriginal part. But it was. (laughs) There's a twist to it isn't there? All the things, the rivers and trees and things that I've loved all my life, and all my life I've gone to trees and rivers.
1: Do you come here when you feel distressed? Yeah. How do you leave?
10: Happy. Had a good talk. Think about what what we said and everything else, and everything makes sense in the end. Doesn't matter how bad you feel. It's always tomorrow. The sun's going to come up tomorrow, as they tell me. It's going to set tomorrow night, Roy. It's going to come up in the morning. We'll be here. And they're here.
1: When you spend time near a, a tree... It's
10: peace. Isn't it? Peace.
1: It's a slower time. A much slower time. Do you
10: think? Yeah. Yeah. Well time stops. That's good. We have a bad day. We all have bad days. Come and give a tree a cuddle. You'll be right. Find a tree somewhere and give her a cuddle or him a cuddle. And you'll be right. Life moves on.
11: My name's Peter Cochrane. I'm currently Director of National Parks uh, for the federal government, but uh, in the 70s and 80s, I worked at the Australian National University doing uh, field ecology. In the early 70s, one of the lead researchers at uh, ANU in plant sciences was um, Professor Ralph Slatcher. He was one of the world's leading plant ecologists. He also had a passion for tree lines and he did ponder why is tree line where it is. There are a series of plots that we worked on one of which is just slightly uphill from Crackenback Top Terminal, and the higher plot is in the Ranshead Range, and the first round of experiments which started in 1972 involved planting five-year-old snow gums, and the first aim of that was to see just would they survive. The majority of them did, and the majority of them actually are still there 40 years on.
1: Describe them for me.
11: Well, it's a very tough environment up there, so they do grow very, very slowly. Sometimes you get good seasons and they'll maybe put on 10 or 15 centimetres of growth, but then sometimes they'll have a bad winter and lose it again. Uh, rather than height, they would get thicker. The ones higher up at Ramshead, more often than not, they might really only be 60 or 80 centimetres. That's pretty tough up there. So a 40-year-old tree that is only 60 centimetres tall, it's not something you normally recognise as a tree.
1: Why is it important where the tree line is and whether it moves or not?
11: Well, it's partly a reflection or a barometer of climate change. So if tree lines are moving, it's a bit like glaciers retreating. There's evidence of climate change, of changing conditions. There is a change in the ecology in the mountains as tree line changes most tree lines around the world are usually comprised of just one species and that's absolutely the case in australia it's snow gums and they are very plastic species they can change their characteristics so they can become more temperature sensitive less temperature sensitive more drought tolerant you actually find them at sea level at frankston in victoria so it's the widest altitudinal range of any eucalypt species but the really exciting thing that happened pretty much as I was in my last couple of years of work up there was that the, it's one thing for things to grow and survive, the next really important step in any organism's life history is to reproduce. And so the, the thing that really got us excited was at both of those locations above tree line, those plants flowered, set seed and their seed fell into the ground beneath them and new seedlings came up. So that was really exciting
12: for us. When I was a young walking guide, I met a venerable old snowgum up in the Jargungal Wilderness area, just off the crest of a low-timbered ridge, north of the Valentine River. He had a massive tumble down bowl supporting multiple trunks and was orders of magnitude older than any snowgum I'd seen. His huge burls had weathered to silver and were shot through with borer holes. Boulder-heaving roots and sloughed-off limbs told an epic story of survival. His life force is palpable. I visited great-grandad many times thereafter. In summer we sprawled and picnicked in his shade and on winter ski trips we huddled behind his bulk. Now snow gums are hardy. They're the only tree that can survive the blizzards and deep frosts up there. But unlike many eucalypts, they can't regenerate from epicormic shoots after a severe fire. A hot fire kills it. Seeds for the next generation fall into the fertile ash bed that was the parents. I had to move to a distant city and for decades tried not to think too much about the high country. But in 2003 a beast of a bushfire ragged on Canberra for a bit, then spat the city out and tore off south up into the high country. For weeks Firestorms burned unchecked across the roof of Australia. Vale, great granddad, I thought. You would not have survived that. It was another five years before I could bring myself to visit again, so I strapped gear to an old pushbike and wheelbarrowed it up the long climb out of Ghi to the edge of the wilderness area. I dropped the bike by the fire trail, trudged off across the heath for a couple of kilometres. All around me is a sea of dead limbs, with thickets of snow gum seedlings thrusting up between them. I'm prepared for the worst. But no, great grandad lives yet. Some of his outer limbs have burned but the core trunks endure and the old bugger's even got a few blossoms. Some unique combination of topography, aspect and providence have protected him from this fire as they must have from fires past. But I reckon if he can survive that fire he's sure to outlive me, and with luck, my great-grandchildren. Great Grandad Snowgum by GC Smith.
1: Danger. Australian trees drop limbs. They've got a name for it, widowmakers. They'll crush a garage or a house without warning. They block gutters and their roots are ruthless to pipes as they seek out water. But most of all, they're fire sticks.
3: Three pine trees. Huge, hairy hounds with deep, rough barks. Watch over our humble timber home. They nip the heels of sheepish clouds. They molt all over the roof. Yet I fear the flames that could turn our dogs against us, transform their shade into an orange glow, convert every placid twig and needle into rabid-biting embers. And I fear the thunderous winds that could push their huge muscle-branched bodies onto our fragile frame, with love and fear's twisted leashes I behold our three pine trees. The Watch Pines by Cameron Simmons
1: In Robert Harrison's forest, it's not what lurks within, but the forest itself which causes fear.
2: The idea that when you enter into a forest, you have a sensation that the forest is looking at you. I can't tell you how many scenes in the history of literature and in mythology repeat this idea that all of a sudden someone who wanders and goes astray in the forest has a sense that all these eyes are looking at him or her. This goes back to a distinction that both Freud as well as Kierkegaard made between fear and anxiety. Fear has a direct object, you know what you're afraid of, you're afraid of the guy who's following you in the, in the street or the animal who is in front of you. Anxiety has an indeterminate object. You don't know exactly what it is that is making you anxious.
1: The phenomenon of fear of trees is written large in Australian explorers' journals. The forest was alien and seemed set against the newcomers. The primal response, which causes us to destroy what frightens us, is thousands of years old. The first documentation of tree-induced anxiety is in the very first written record. It's the epic of Gilgamesh, a real Sumerian king and founder of the city of Uruk, who lived four and a half thousand years ago. Gilgamesh looks over the walls of his city, and he sees the forest far away and its apparent permanence fills him with dread. Remember the sky gods and the clearing? Gilgamesh asks the sun god's permission to cut the forest down.
2: Right, because the forest has a kind of immortality that he doesn't have. And I think that it's not exaggerating to say that in a certain sense, in his subconscious, he's taking revenge on the natural world, for his own mortality. So much of our human behaviour in relation to nature, especially to forest, seems to have a kind of irrational rage, an almost unmastered adolescent rage about it that is taking vengeance on nature for the fact that it has a permanence that we are denied.
1: I wonder if our anxiety about trees in our suburban gardens today spiders, roots, leaves and fires notwithstanding, is because those trees are bringing the wildness of nature into our fiercely defended, cultured and personal space.
2: And there are scenes, I know in Jean-Paul Sartre's famous novel, Nausea, The protagonist there has this nightmare vision of the green belt coming back into the city and putting its green paws over everything. And and this for a rationalist like Jean-Paul Sartre was really a nightmare because it's true that there's something about the unmastered natural world, the forces, the vitality that present a threat to our presumption of total control of our environment. And it's the fear, but it's also a part of hubris that if we don't have total control, then uh, something's wrong. And the vegetable life can sometimes get out of control.
13: Towards the end of his life, my father would spend his time in his favorite armchair by the window, looking out at an old red gum tree. Being from the Rhineland, he always felt more comfortable in nature and with animals than with his own kind. One day, to his profound sadness, the retirement village cut down his favourite tree. My mother went shopping, and on her return, to her surprise, and despite his frailty, he had managed to use his walking frame to struggle 80 metres, lift a sizable slice of the timber, balance it on his frame, and manoeuvre it back home. His words to my mother were, "He wanted to save part of that tree." My father and the tree by Utah Pryor.
2: In our age, I think the anxiety that we project in the forest is that of the imminent demise of the forest. We're at the edge of, you know, losing something irretrievably. That probably corresponds to some extent to the reality of deforestation, but in my view, there's a deeper anxiety about the end of our own civilization. We might be seeing an image of what we're doing, not only to those forests in the Amazon or elsewhere, but what we're doing to ourselves as a society. There's more at stake in the worry that we have about losing forests than mere economic considerations, or the fact that there are medicines that will never be found. There's a sense that as goes the fate of the forest, so goes the fate of our civilization.